Hello, and welcome to the Primordial Soup Pot. I'm Rustin Pere. And I'm Aaron Johnson. Or every two weeks, Aaron and I will uh, talk about some topic from the wild and wonderful world of natural history, ecology, and evolution, picking a general theme for the episode, and then each of us will pick a specific topic. But the other person has no idea what the other person will talk about. And so this week, we've decided to talk about monogamy, because this is coming out right around Valentine's Day, right? Yes, and don't forget, the other person will also forget when it is their turn to begin the intro. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> we we edited it out, but it was like a solid three or four seconds when <laughs> we were just waiting for the other person to start talking. Intent, uh, eye contact, a couple eyebrow raises, some gestures. Yeah, that's what happens whenever two introverts get together. <laughs> it's just awkward eyebrow raising and looks at like, you're going to talk? You're going to talk? So, with that being said... How was your research for this episode in general? Uh, my research was not hard because I already knew what group of animals I wanted to pick. And there's only one. So that really narrowed it down. Okay. All right. Well, my research was a bit more complicated, but uh, I think it's my turn to go first. So let me get right into it. All right. What you got for me? So the first thing I wanted to discuss regarding this topic um, is the definition of monogamy, at least as far as behavioral ecologists talk about it. Because um, the definition that scientists use and the definition that the public at large use, they're not exactly the same. So for the whole episode, I think it's worth defining right off the bat. Scientists generally split monogamy into two separate categories. So there's social monogamy, where... Two parents, a male and a female, will raise the young that they produce together as a pair. And they might come back and do the same thing year after year after year, or they might do it seasonally. But either way, um, they're committed to each other, at least socially, in terms of their obligations for child rearing, right? Now, the other half is genetic monogamy, which refers to the mating behavior of the parents, because if the parents are reproducing exclusively with each other, then they are exhibiting genetically monogamous behavior. However, if one or both of the pair are mating with other individuals, more colloquially known as cheating, the pair is not genetically monogamous. So monogamy, as most people would define it, combines the two, right? You have, but in the natural world, it's far more common for a species to be socially monogamous but not genetically monogamous or to not be monogamous at all um so for example 90 percent of all bird species exhibit social monogamy because they raise their young together as a pair however far fewer bird species are genetically monogamous because cheating is actually pretty common amongst bird species everyone's doing it exactly there are actually bird species that have like crazy patterns of cheating amongst couples and you know, extra prayer copulations and things like that. That's not the topic that I'm going to talk about, but it's pretty crazy. Is it possible to have genetic monogamy without social monogamy? I don't think so. I feel, I always feel like genetic monogamy is just another step. Like that's a full committance. Yeah. Generally, if you're genetically monogamous, you're probably also socially monogamous, but I'm sure there's an exception somewhere. There's always an exception in biology. Exactly. There's an exception to pretty much every rule, but it is really funny to hear about them, like to hear about scientists uh, doing like 
genetic tests on all these different species to determine who the actual parents are of each individual offspring because it's kind of like it's kind of like the scientific version of Maury. <laughs> the Jerry Springer show. Exactly. <laughs> you are the father. Anyway. <laughs> they get you are not the father. And they do a little backflip. <laughs> right. <laughs> but even though we're talking about birds and how uncommon genetic monogamy is, for mammals it's far worse because less than 5% of mammal species even exhibit social monogamy. But there is one species that breaks the, this rule in incredible fashion. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today. I'm going to talk about the prairie vole. Are you at all familiar with this? I think I remember this one. Okay. So a bit of background on this species, just so everyone has an idea of what we're talking about. Prairie voles are native to the plains of North America. So, you know, the whole center of that continent around, you know, Ohio, Indiana, up to the Dakotas, into the the west a little bit up into canada a little bit too pretty much wherever the buffalo live that's probably prairie vole territory in terms of their appearance kind of think about a hamster with slightly different ears and they have like pretty much the same habitat and diet you would expect so basically small rodents right yeah just little guys so given how relatively unremarkable this rodent looks how did it first get noticed by researchers? So researchers at the universe. What? One of them stepped on it. Just looked at the bottom of his shoe and was like, oh, look at that. Potentially. But we don't know that for sure. It's not confirmed. <laughs> He's a fuzzy bubble gum. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, so researchers at the University of Illinois were conducting a population study on rodents in a field near their campus. And they had a shed where they would conduct their research on site. They had to sometimes make these observations at night when the rodents were most active, because rodents are nocturnal generally. And this was problematic in wintertime because the temperatures would get below zero, right? It can get pretty cold in the Midwest. So they decided to take the edge off the cold like proper alcoholics with whiskey. So they kept a bottle of Jack Daniels in the shed. The issue with this is that they would spill the whiskey sometimes and this attracted voles. Because apparently voles really like alcohol too. So what they began to notice was that these voles would show up in pairs pretty commonly. You know, and being rodent researchers, they started trapping the voles, you know, that were attracted by the booze. And um, they began to notice that these pairs were male and female. Again, being scientists, they decided to attach tiny little trackers to the pairs and found that these pairs would were cohabitating in the same burrow pretty rare behavior for mammals because as i discussed earlier less than five percent of mammals are even socially monogamous and this ratio is much lower for rodent species which are pretty much just you know hook up with whoever you can find so the question then became just how serious are these pair bonds between prairie voles you know are they just roommates friends with benefits situationship maybe full-blown princess bride level true love like What's going on here? So it turns out that the voles lean toward the latter end of that spectrum. Pairs will share a burrow, but build a nest and defend a territory together, you know, and they'll also raise their young together. So they're socially monogamous. Apparently they also go out and get wasted together too, because they love alcohol. That's a great bonding exercise. That's the takeaway. Exactly. If your relationship is failing, you both get pissed drunk together. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. That'll solve all your problems. Just wait till someone spills a little bit of whiskey on the floor and start lapping it up. Yep. Or it'll make it a whole lot worse. It's 50-50. I wouldn't say it's 50-50. It's much much more likely to make it a whole lot worse because everyone's going to get drunk and then you're going to break up like three hours later. It's going to be terrible. But it might work out, but probably not. Anyway, on a more sentimental note, the voles are just generally adorable because they will cuddle and sleep with their partners for hours and hours at a time. That's what the pairs spend most of their time doing when they're not feeding or raising young. They just sleep and cuddle with each other. It's adorable. They also have these crazy long mating sessions with like lots of cuddling and affectionate, you know, uh, interaction. Like these sessions are like 40 hours long. Did a researcher have to watch the whole thing? Yes. They were so long, actually, that at a certain point, the researchers who were analyzing this behavior had to put the recordings on time lapse because none of them had time for 40 hours of vol porn. Like, no one wants to, no one has time to sit through that. Thank God none of them got raided by the FBI. Just going through the computer, finding 40 hours of that. Officer comes up and is like, well, none of this is strictly illegal, but uh, <laughs> it's still a little weird. Rainforest 2K20, baby. <laughs> anyway, so then the question begs to be asked, why are prairie voles so different in their mating habits compared to other rodents and even other mammals, right? Because this kind of monogamy and commitment to one partner is super rare. Well, analysis of prairie vole brains revealed the influence of two neurotransmitters. They are oxytocin and vasopressin. Generally speaking, oxytocin is a chemical in the brain which is associated with the perception of social cues, childbirth, and maternal bonding. I think it's also you can get it from firing a gun. Possibly. I know they call it the cuddle drug also. Yes. Yes, they do call it that. I did not hear about the gun stuff, though. I remember hearing that once. Where? I know there's something like people were talking about how it's the cuddle drug and then they start elaborating more like you can get the same rush from gambling, firing a gun, stuff like that. So it's there's a whole spectrum to it. So if you're feeling lonely, you know, gambling and firearms. Yeah. Lots of relationship advice on this one. Yeah. Throw in a guitar and you got yourself a country song. <laughs> anyway, the other one is vasopressin and vasopressin is a chemical that is associated with territoriality and aggression. So, again, generally, oxytocin is thought to be the chemical that affects female voles, while vasopressin affects the males. What's interesting about these chemicals is that they're fairly ubiquitous in the brains of animals throughout the world, um, many of which are not monogamous in any way, shape, or form. They're not socially monogamous, and they're definitely not genetically monogamous. So, as it turns out, with prairie voles, it's not the chemicals themselves, but the presence of receptors which is really important because after all, if a chemical signal is present, but the mechanism to detect it is not, is the message still being sent? You know, it's the age old question of a tree falling in the forest with no one around. Does it still make a sound? So prairie voles, as it turns out, have lots of receptors for these chemicals, but not only do they have them, they have them in the areas of the brain, which are associated with addiction. So these chemicals are released when the voles mate, and they act in the area of, a, of the brain which triggers addiction. Thus, the voles become addicted to their partners and fall in love. 
It's basically how that works. So the idea is that the oxytocin chemical that's released, again, generally with the female voles, triggers a, like a reaction similar to how mothers usually bond with their babies after they give birth, except that reaction is associated with their partner, their sexual partner. And with the males, it's a similar thing, but with the vasopressin chemical that is associated with territoriality and aggression. But again, that kind of reaction is more associated with their partner. So the overall effect is that the male and the female voles form this really powerful bond with each other. Yeah, they're just hardwired for that. Exactly. They really are. So what's even more interesting is that there's another species of vole called the meadow voles. And the meadow voles live very close to the prairie voles, and they're very close relatives of the prairie voles as well. In many ways, the two species are basically identical, except the meadow voles are incredibly promiscuous with no loyalty to any of their sexual partners. They're basically full, like full-time frat bros, just whoever they can find, right? Stumbling about whoever's lapping up the whiskey next to them. <laughs> yeah, That's exactly. what they'll take. Exactly. What's crazy is that when researchers managed to increase the number of oxytocin and or vasopressin receptors in their brains in a way which matched the prairie voles, the meadow voles showed increased affection toward their partners and acted monogamously. So in short, they turned a meadow vole into a prairie vole, at least in terms of their behavior. So the meadow voles basically just underwent the character arc of a male lead in a rom-com. All of this then raises questions about how this evolved, right? Yeah. Because, like, if so many other species are non-monogamous and there seem to be benefits for both males and females of non-monogamy in the animal kingdom, um, why did these particular voles go in the complete opposite direction? A theory that has been put forward is that the prairie voles live in a habitat without really without a lot of plentiful food. So the parents of baby voles stood a better chance of raising their young to adulthood if they work together to defend a territory and find food. My issue with this is that it doesn't explain the meadow voles, which live in a lot of the same areas. You're right, and I'm assuming they're more or less identical looking? Yes, yes. Yeah, so it's not like one is massive and the other is tiny. They are Correct. essentially doing the same thing. Correct. So basically, how this really, really crazy interaction evolved is still largely a mystery. Um, there's a lot we don't understand about how the bonds form between prairie voles and even what they could, what that could mean for humans. Because like I said, these chemicals are present throughout the animal kingdom. And this includes humans. We have these same chemicals in our brains. So what they found is that the presence or absence of oxytocin, um, could lead to different understandings of monogamy in humans and how humans experience love, as well as understanding other diseases like autism because oxytocin is linked to so the perception of social cues. And one of the defining traits of autism is not being able to understand social cues that are being given by other people. And so they've been able to link that to the presence of oxytocin. So the study of prairie voles has been able to open up a lot of doors into our understanding of human interaction as well in addition to just studying this really fascinating interaction between rodent species that's totally unlike almost anything else you see 
amongst rodents. And it all came from a couple of scientists spilling a little bit of whiskey on the floor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I really want to be there in that moment just to see the researcher go, hey, guys, look at that. It's <laughs> just two of them walking. Yeah, honestly. Like, I, I got to follow them. I got to put a tracker on them. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much how a lot of scientists are. And that's, again, what I really love about the scientific attitude, at least amongst a lot of researchers, is that a lot of it is about, you know, just being naturally curious and seeing something really cool and wanting to know more about it. So like these researchers didn't initially go out into a field to look for prairie voles. They just happened to find prairie voles and be like completely intrigued with how they were showing up to drink whiskey out of their shed. And then that led down this whole rabbit hole of social interaction and monogamy that's been a subject of study for three or four decades now. Mm -hmm. And that also raises the point, you're not going to go out and research something that you haven't already made an initial observation prompting the research. See, True. if they didn't like, they're not going to go out and research these voles if they just think they're voles. Like if they just act like every other rodent, they're probably not going to give them much interest. It's just because of that random observation. Right, right. But they still made that random observation. Yes. Yeah. That, I'm you just know. saying, I like that, you know, just that perfect moment. Yes. Kickstart all this. So, like, I've been poking a little bit of fun on the, at them because they were drinking whiskey. But I think that it really embodies a lot of what it, there is to like about the scientific spirit and just academia in general. But if anything, we should all do the same. Exactly. Exactly. And that's one of the things that I really love about science that I'll keep talking about over and over and over again, because it's just so cool. But back to the prairie voles, like I said, there's a lot we still don't really understand about how this interaction works. What was really confusing to me is I, that I came across this study where they eliminated all the oxytocin receptors from a population of prairie voles. So in theory, this should turn the prairie voles back into meadow voles, right? Because they don't have those same kind of chemical pathways in their brains that trigger monogamy. I mean, right? Yeah. Wrong. The prairie voles were still able to form intense pair bonds like normal prairie voles, even without the oxytocin pathways. Did they do it at a diminished rate? Nope. They seem to be largely unaffected. Maybe they just got used to it. Maybe. But what this said to me, at least, was that there are other mechanisms which trigger monogamous behavior in prairie voles beyond the ones related to oxytocin and vasopressin. The way it seems to me is that there are the main pathways that we've known about for years now, but then there are probably also backup pathways that trigger the same behavior, right? Mm -hmm. And so this also means that there had to be some really strong evolutionary incentive for this behavior amongst the prairie voles. Because if there's not only one pathway, but additional backup pathways for this behavior, it had to be really, really important somehow. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm following you. There's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of information let, still out there that we don't know, and a lot of pieces to this puzzle that we still you know need to put together. And personally, I'm really excited to see where it goes because it could lead down some interesting rabbit holes in terms of human behavior that we might not necessarily need to go down, you know? Yeah, that's immediately what I was starting to think about, about how 
this research related to people. Right. Right. Like at certain points in the articles that I read, they were interviewing these researchers who were studying prairie voles and they had identified certain traits in prairie voles that were also present in humans. And they've been able to link these traits to like monogamous or non-monogamous levels of behavior, even in humans. And they were like, well, what does your brain look like? And the researchers were like, oh, I don't want to know. <laughs> yeah, no, that's smart. I wouldn't want to either. Like, I wouldn't want to know that I'm like predisposed for cheating or anything. I don't think I am at all, but that's not something I want to know. Like that would lead to a serious, that would lead to a serious self-crisis, you know? Yeah, and it's also interesting that there even is, you could be genetically predisposed to cheating. Yeah. Not saying it's going to cause it, because there's genetic and there's environmental cues, and both of them play large roles in development. Right. That's a whole other conversation, though. Right. It's not nature or nurture. It's some com- It's somewhere in the middle for pretty much everybody. And yeah, I think that in a lot of ways, the behavior of prairie voles could unlock a lot of the mysteries surrounding human romance. So... It's something to keep an eye on moving forward. Now, I think you forgot the most important part about the Voles, and that is how they were St. Mary's College of Maryland's number one <laughs> intramural floor hockey team. <laughs> so back in freshman year, Rustin, amongst other of our friends, was on a floor hockey team, and uh, everyone else went to support them, and we all, you know, we all go, we cheer them on. I would dress up as the coach. And I walk out with a megaphone. I had like glasses. I had a hat. I had a whole outfit and I'd cheer them on. And at one point, one of our friends said, go Voles. And I was unaware that that was a thing people said. What was it like the Tennessee Volunteers? Yeah. 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 I was unaware of that. So I immediately thought he was calling them Voles like the rodents. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) I guess that's our mascot now. And that's just what I assumed for a long time. It's also worth noting that we were terrible. And I we did not win a game all year until the playoffs started. And somehow we won like two or three playoff games in a row and finished second. It's also worth noting that Aaron during that time gave one of the greatest pep talks at halftime I have ever heard. So he we were all huddled up around him and he had his clipboard out. And he drew an X on one side of the board. He was like, all right. So one of you is here, and then he drew an X on the other side. He's like, the other one, the other one of you is here, and then he drew like an X on the other side of the clipboard. He's like, someone else is here, and then he draws a, like a curved line connecting them, you know, in a phallic shape, and then goes, and then that's a dick because you guys are getting fucked out there. <laughs> uh, pleasant memories. <sighs> so yeah, best halftime speech I've ever heard. <laughs> Props. Major props, sir. That was incredible. I try my best. Anyway, so just to wrap up the segment on prairie voles, I want to give a quick shout out here to Dr. Larry Young at Emory University and Dr. Sue Carter at the University of Illinois, because they've conducted a lot of the research on prairie voles that I used for this piece. More than enough for me to give them a shout out. So keep up the good work, guys. And I'm really curious to see what you guys come up with in the future. That's my piece. Nice. I remember... I vaguely remember the voles from college. I think we talked about them once. Yeah, they definitely came up during animal behavior class, but it was more kind of like in passing. There wasn't a lot of, we didn't really go into a lot of detail around them, which makes sense because like there's so much you can cover with animal behavior, but it's, you can't just stick with one animal. Every animal example is just in passing. 
What have you got for me? All right. So I will be discussing monogamy and amphibians. Amphibians, huh? Yeah. So since it's already rare in pretty much every other animal, how rare do you think it is in amphibians? Basically non-existent. Yep, pretty much. (laughs) Yeah, so we kind of already talked about monogamy and how there's social monogamy and there's genetic monogamy. And genetic is kind of the extra step. So even if you have two adults that are seemingly raising their children together, they probably are also cheating on the side. Or maybe that's not even their kids. Correct. Correct. So with amphibians, not only is monogamy rare, but pretty much any form of parental care at all is pretty rare right off the start. Most amphibians kind of choose to die fast. Most amphibians choose to live fast, die young, and just ditch the kids as soon as the eggs are laid. Right. Amphibians seem like they tend to take the spray and pray approach to parenthood. Yeah, basically, you just produce a lot of them. You put in no effort at all. You can lay up to hundreds of eggs at a time. That's great. If a couple get eaten, you got backups. Not a big deal. Exactly. Just toss them all out and hope for the best. Okay, but there are exceptions to this rule? There are exceptions in parental care. That's not as rare. You can find a decent amount of examples. And what's interesting is it is usually the male that exhibits parental care in amphibians. Whereas I think a lot of other animals, it's the female. Right, because that's generally like the female approach to passing on your genes. Like the stereotypically male approach is that you try and um, basically mate with as many partners as possible to produce as many young, and you're not putting as much energy into your gametes. Whereas females put a lot of energy into producing a very select collection of gametes. And then you're, you're basically pot committed at that point. And you want to make sure that everything works out with the young that you do produce. Yeah. Stereotypically. Stereotypically. I think, I'm not sure why this is exactly. I think one of the examples is for amphibians, at least for frogs, all the fertilization of eggs is external. So there's no, there's no penis. Basically the females lay the eggs and then the male releases the sperm directly onto them. So the male kind of always knows that those eggs are his offspring. There's no question. Whereas a female that has multiple sexual partners and it's internal fertilization, there's going to be a little bit of question up in the air. Right. Okay. So that might be one of the reasons why some male frogs will exhibit parental care. A couple examples are African bullfrogs, which not only attack predators to get close to their tadpoles, and these guys are big. I mean, imagine a dinner plate being launched at you. They have teeth too. They can like, they can do some damage. So not only will they defend their tadpoles, but sometimes they'll even dig trenches for them. If they're in a puddle that's drying up, they'll try and dig a little channel so the tadpoles can swim into a larger body of water. Okay. It's pretty cool. And there's also various tree frogs, which may guard the eggs from predators as well. You can find a neat little clip on YouTube with, I believe it's a glass frog of some sorts. And a wasp is trying to feed on its eggs and it just kicks the wasp every time it comes by. It's pretty cool. Okay, but does any of this parental care occur as a pair? Yes, I'm getting to that. Okay. I just, I felt like a lead up. All right, frogman, carry on. (laughs) When these frogs invest in more parental care, they typically have fewer offspring. And that's usually the case for most monogamous animals. If you're investing a lot of care into them, 
then you don't have as much offspring. Correct. So on one end, you'll have animals that pump out tons of kids and toss them to the curb, see which ones become old enough to send the postcard. And on the other end, you have helicopter parents whose entire lives are dedicated to their kids' success. So think animals like whales, birds of prey, elephants. They can really only have one, maybe two kids at a time. So they're putting a lot of their energy into that. Okay. So that's kind of the spectrum of parental care. Now, genetic monogamy is exceedingly rare. We do have one case of social monogamy and amphibians, maybe another. And for a while, this was the only example that we knew of. And that was in the redback salamander, Plethodon cenarius. And with these guys, what's interesting is both the male and the females will guard the eggs together in what appeared to be social monogamy during the breeding season. So they do stay together and they both protect the offspring. However, genetic studies found that they weren't exactly loyal to each other. And with salamanders, unlike frogs, there is internal fertilization. So there could be a question of paternity, especially with females being able to store sperm from other partners over an extended period of time. The male kind of doesn't know if they're his kids or not. Okay. And like I said, for a while, this is the only example. However, this wasn't until about 2010 where we found the first case of genetic and social monogamy. And that comes from a small species of poison dart frog in Peru. It's called Ranitomea imitator. Wait, their species name is imitator? Yes, that's their last name. I'm just going to call them the imitator frogs for short. So they are poison dart frogs. However, their toxicity is much less compared to a closely related species, and that is Renatomea veritabilis. That's why they mimic them. So their toxicity is, it does not even compare. It's like a tenfold difference. So they want to look like they're really toxic guys. They still have it, just not as much. And what's cool about these guys is we actually have a pretty good idea of why they're monogamous, but the closely related veritabilis frogs aren't. That's one of the key differences between them. It's kind of like your voles there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I said, close related, same genus. I mean, they look pretty close too because one mimics the other. They essentially are the same frog, minus the whole species thing. But one is monogamous and one isn't. Okay, but from like a predatory perspective, like it should be pretty easy to tell them apart. Like if you see a pair of frogs together, they're probably safe to eat. If you see one by itself, don't eat it. No, if you see a pair of them that are uh, drinking whiskey off the floor, then you know they're okay. (laughs) If you just see one, mm, I wouldn't touch that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. See one by itself, sober. That's trouble. Don't go near it. So, like I said, comparing the two, the difference in, besides their toxicity difference, they look and act largely the same. The key difference are their mating habits. The imitator frogs lay eggs in clutches of one to three. They raise tadpoles in small nutrient-poor pools of water, and they invest a lot of parental care. The veritabilis frogs are highly promiscuous. Only the males provide parental care, and the tadpoles develop in larger pools with more nutrients. All right. All right. So a deeper dive, the imitator frogs, like I said, very small bodies of water. I'm talking about 25 milliliters in total. Okay, yeah. So this is... Sometimes up in trees, it might be in like a bromeliad plant, just like a pool of water collected in a plant. It might be in a little hollow of a tree, a little puddle on the ground, something like that, just tucked okay. away. Okay, so these frogs are tiny, though. They're they're all tiny. Uh, they're probably no more than an inch or two. Okay, gotcha. All dart frogs are pretty small. Got it. 
I mean, they'd be frightening if they weren't. I mean, they're they're scary enough as is, but could you imagine like a big poison dart frog? They're not scary. Yeah. Just don't eat them. Right. Something that poisonous? It's frightening. No. no you, they're not venomous. They can't bite you. Just don't eat them. That's literally the only thing. You can just like touch one and forget to wash your hands and have your day really messed up. Just don't touch them. They're brightly colored. They have all the warnings there. What if it jumps on you? <laughs> Why would they attack you? What if it jumps in your mouth? <laughs> what are you going to well, do that's then? That's on you for getting really close to it, mouth open, just going, oh. What if you're right next to it and yawn and then it jumps in? <laughs> Got to call 911. Uh, you're struggling to get it out. They just go, mm, let me guess. Yawning and a frog in the mouth. You go. <laughs> I've seen this before. Ten times, actually. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, in that scenario, there's, like, you're kind of blameless there. You just, like, saw a poison dirt frog and were like, oh, it's boring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, in case you ever find yourself in that situation, uh, cover, I guess. So what are you... Telling people to mask up whenever they go into the rainforest? Uh, dude, I think you're the one saying that. No, that's your solution to my problem. <laughs> okay. You're the one saying that. <laughs> I'm moving past this because this <laughs> is not going to happen. Anyways, so yeah, small bodies of water. And the males will actually transport the tadpoles when needed to. So the sometimes they'll lay eggs on a leaf. And if that leaf is not above a pool of water that tadpoles will drop and the male can scoop them onto his back and kind of truck them around the rainforest. A lot of poison dart frogs do this, actually. Oh, they're just giving them a little piggyback ride. And the issue with being in a very small body of water, also nutrient-poor one, is, well, nutrient-poor. There's not really any food there. So even though the males can transport the tadpoles when needed, there's no way for him to actually feed the young. All you can do is move them around a little bit. And if you have a good spot, you don't really want to take them anywhere else. So this is where the female comes in. The male, about once a week, will call for the female and she'll return. The females will be out in foraging where the male will stay with the young. She'll return and lay unfertilized eggs for the tadpoles to eat. Oh, okay. That's cool. That is cool. It doesn't seem like she does much, but I will say producing eggs takes a lot of energy. So the female likely spends a lot of time hunting bugs to be able to produce these infertile eggs. She will also occasionally transport the young as well, but this is rarer. Okay, so how often does the female get called back? Are there cases where the male just like, where the eggs just happen to be in a great spot and the male doesn't need the female at all? So I read that it's about every six to ten days. However, the study focused on them, focused them when they were young. So one egg will last much longer when they're smaller. So she might do it more frequently as the tadpoles grow up. And it'll take them several weeks before they become a little frog and hop away. What's cool is there's even evidence of tadpoles displaying begging behaviors where they will nip at the parents' feet when they're hungry. So they can even alert the male that they want something to eat and then he can call for the female to bring home food. Ah, just like human kids. <laughs> They're constantly gnawing at your feet. Little ankle biters. So adorable. It's thought that the combination of poor resources and a high degree of co-parental care is why the frogs evolved this monogamous system. 
they both have to invest a lot of resources. So there's a high degree of codependence to ensure the young survival. There's been a couple studies found where when you remove the male or the female, the likelihood of the tadpoles making to adulthood just plummets. Really? Okay. So the male will protect the egg or protect the tadpoles and he will move them around. And the female is the one providing the food. Even though the two are not together for a lot of the time, you still need both of them. If you take away one or the other, sometimes the females just won't return. Sometimes she can't afford to return to the eggs. She'll just kind of leave them. And with the male, well, there's just not enough food, so the tadpoles most likely starve. Okay, so this is all very wholesome, at least as far as amphibians are concerned. But I'm not really getting, like, monogamous co-parent vibes from this. I'm more getting, like, divorced parent vibes from this. Well, I mean, there's not a lot of romance in frogs, if we're being honest. They're frogs. Maybe it's just, uh, maybe the mom is a trucker. You know, she's out on the road for a week and she comes back home feed the kids goes back out gotta put food on the table somehow you know it's like it's like a situation where like the female frog has the kids on weekends you know comes back when she's needed just doesn't seem very cool it doesn't seem as as cooperative you know i think it just sounds like a regular couple i mean picture this the kids are hungry you're the dad they want something to eat you look at the pantry you're like i i don't know what to do with this and you just kind of scream until your wife comes home to make something for the kids. <laughs> All the while, you've got little kids nibbling on your toes. <laughs> All right, uh, we got some eggs and frozen peas. What can I work with this? We got half a bagel, too. Can I do anything with that? <laughs> yeah, just throwing it together, waiting for <laughs> mom to bring home a pizza. Right, right. So maybe this will sway your opinion. Because one study found that out of 12 pairs that were sampled, 11 of them were found to be the genetic parents of the offspring, which is a pretty good ratio. And for the one pair that wasn't, the researchers did something really cool. They set up a tiny little studio and they had two chairs for the frogs. And they actually announced the results of the paternity test to a small frog audience. And upon hearing this, the male frog was reported to have done a little backflip. <laughs> Let it be noted that I already had this joke in my script before we made it earlier. Let's <laughs> uh, say you know we were right to start a podcast together when both of us included a Mari joke in the monogamy episode. <laughs> so, like I said, one out of 12 is actually pretty low, and that still meets the standard for genetic monogamy. And I'm not sure what exactly happened with one pair. But like I said earlier, generally speaking for frogs, the males can be pretty confident the eggs are theirs as fertilization is done externally. You you know, it you saw it happen. There's no question. Right, right. You don't have to worry about like the personal trainer frog coming in and, you know, doing any funny business on the side. <laughs> Wondering about uh, who's Rebecca from the office, stuff like that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so any animals with internal fertilization, the males can't be certain the kids are theirs. You know, if the female's been out sneaking around, there's always going to be the maybe, maybe not. But frogs, they're pretty confident. Same for fish, too, I believe. Not all fish do external fertilization, but some do. Okay, but even the ones, like, I've seen footage of fish doing external fertilization. It just seems very haphazard. It doesn't seem precise. It's just kind of seems, at least in a lot of cases, like, 
you know, the females are releasing eggs, the males are releasing sperm, and just whatever happens, happens. It doesn't seem like planned, you know? So, not there's a strategy, I don't know if you remember this, for sunfish, where you'll have the dominant males that get the girls, and then you'll have the sneaky little males, and their whole goal is to just zoom in really quickly when that's happening, and kind of crop dust all the eggs, and then get out, and hope that some of them are his. Oh yeah, yeah. I remember that. I also remember reading about the cut about cuttlefish too, because there are two morphs of cuttlefish males. They're like the big, strong cuttlefish males that attract all the females, and then there are these little piddly little cuttlefish that look like females, and so they wind up like being you know herded into these like harems that the bigger males have set up basically, and then the little males basically wind up mating with a lot of females basically right under the nose of the first larger male classic blunder every time right so they're both apparently really viable mating strategies for cuttlefish so we look at the variabilis frogs like i said they they're kind of like your shrews they're very similar to the imitator frogs my shrews yeah your shrews oh crap your voles sir i might have said shrews earlier how dare you they're a vole. I might have said that a couple times. They're the mascots for our intramural college hockey team. How dare you? Go voles. Go voles. Uh, so the variabilis frogs. Uh, we see that their young develop in water that is much bigger and already has resources in it. So the females really don't need to lay eggs for them to eat. Thus, they aren't as involved. Thus, both females and the males will kind of cheat, not even cheating on each other. They'll just go out and mate a bunch of times. They have no co-parenting behaviors. The females are the ones to just ditch. Yeah, it's just like a bunch of, you know, one night stands, basically, for those frogs, right? Still, it's cool that that's the reverse of most other animals where the male's the one that ditches. But because the females are never pregnant, it's not a big deal. Really, anyone could be stuck with them. That's true. And they're allowed to be non-monogamous because they get they have all the good real estate for raising their kids. It's different. So they're having more offspring as well because okay. it's bigger areas. But there's also going to be more predators and there's going to be more competition. So it's thought that the imitator frogs use these small pools because there is both less competition and less predators. And they also exploit a previously unused niche. And it's likely that if they laid eggs in areas where the parents didn't need to invest as much, they probably would not display monogamy. So for them, it's really a result of just where they're laying eggs, kind of. That's where it all kind of comes down to in the end and how much parental care they need to invest. And that's why researchers think these factors are what caused it to evolve. That seems to be the general idea behind a lot of monogamous relationships in the animal kingdom, but that still doesn't explain the meadow vole and prairie vole conundrum at all no no they are kind of an exception like these frogs we i don't know if we can really trace it back to brain chemistry i'm sure there's something at play but it's more much it's much more of a in-your-face kind of practical solution the voles are a conundrum it seems much more straightforward with your frogs they seem to be very like monogamous out of necessity Mm -hmm. you know they kind of work themselves into a corner where they have to be like I said, they're only having one to three. The paper said the max was four. So that's really not many tadpoles, especially when you consider other frogs that'll have hundreds at a time. Right, exactly. And it's in a tiny pool of water too. So they're both putting all their money into that. 
All right. Awesome. And that's my piece. Cool. I honestly didn't know that there were monogamous relationships in amphibians. They they seem to be a very, very, you know, non-committed bunch. Yeah, but... I was pretty surprised also. I think I also started looking at reptiles, and I really did not find that much out there either. I looked at fish first, but there's actually quite a few examples in fish. Yeah, yeah. There's much I, more than you would think. I thought about doing a bird for this episode, but that, well, that would have been too easy. Yeah, Plus, birds are like the go-to example. They really are. And yeah, like I said earlier, 90% of bird species are socially monogamous because it's really common for bird species to defend a territory together mm-hmm. and raise young together. Besides, the prairie voles are so much more interesting in terms of the extreme nature of their monogamy. That's far more extreme than than even many bird species in terms of how committed they are. Also, it's really interesting to consider all the questions surrounding why that evolved and how that evolved when it's so different from all of the rodents. Yeah, the frog one, the answer is kind of right there. It's kind of obvious why they do it. I know of other examples like there was I remember we learned about a hamster that was monogamous and that species was monogamous strictly because they live so far spread out that the likelihood of them encountering another one of their species is pretty low. So once you find someone, that's it. You got them. Uh, That's the card you're dealt. Hope it's a good one. Right, right, exactly. It could be years before you see another one. Yeah, yeah. Although what's also interesting about species like that is that they don't, a lot of times species that are very isolated for most of their lives, at least from others of the same species, they develop a lot. They don't really interact very well with their own species outside of like mating behavior. So like, I remember when I was in college, I worked in a lab that bred and raised axolotls, which are primarily solitary. They don't really interact socially with other axolotls outside of their mating behavior. And it was so severe that like, they're so severely isolated for most of their lives and so severely solitary that once they'd mated and like once the male had done his thing and it was just up to the female to like, you know, collect all the sperm and produce eggs, we would take the male out because all the male is going to do is just start like bothering the female and just attacking the female because they don't like being around other axolotls. Mm-hmm. You can have the complete opposite effect that you were talking about with those hamsters where, you know, animals that are isolated run into other animals when they want to mate and reproduce. But after that's done, they're just kind of like, well, I just hate being around other individuals. I like being alone. You know, I'm not going to stick around to care for the kids, you know? Yeah, that's how it is for a, a lot of reptiles and amphibians are that way. They're solitary. And that can right. be an issue, too, where people will think like, oh, he's lonely. He needs a friend. And then they get a friend and then they learn, oh, king snakes are cannibals. Yep. Yep. That kind of situation. When they are together, it's usually they tolerate each other. There's not a lot of social interactions. They don't seek it out. Right. They only tolerate each other because they just want to get laid. Yep. That's it. They put up with it just for a bit. Yeah. It's just as long as they have to. It's very much after you should have this coffee, I think you should go home. (laughs) Right. Or don't even stick around for the coffee. Just get out. Just leave. Just afterwards, uh, yeah, so I'm going to go to bed. uh, You can let yourself out. (laughs) Right. 
if you're here in the morning, I will call the cops. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm just really tired, you know, and it's late. So, uh... Yeah, you know where the door is. You came in. You walked right through it. You got You it. did. You did. Yeah. I even made sure that we drove separate cars so you didn't have to Uber. You could find your way home. <laughs> All right. Well, now the question remains. What are we doing next episode? <sighs> All right. I thought about this for a little bit. I was thinking about talking about. I, I was thinking we haven't done a lot of prehistoric topics. No, we really haven't. Like our intro talks about how we discuss ecology, evolution and natural history, but we haven't talked about a lot of natural history. Natural history can be recent. Yeah, but people associate natural history with like the spectrum of several million years. Yeah. Most of what we talk about regarding natural history happened within the last hundred thousand or so. So I feel like we could do something. Last hundred thousand or so. I'd say most of it happened in the last hundred or so. I was being generous that because <laughs> that would also include, you know, my discussion of. Well, no, that wouldn't include the megalodon. Megalodon. Never mind. But a lot of the topics we talked about in terms of like how this evolved, you know, to the present day, a lot of that evolution occurred within the last you know few thousand years, mm -hmm. as opposed to the last few million years. So I was thinking we should probably do something more prehistoric. All right, like what do you have in mind? I was thinking we could talk about extinct lineages, you know, like genus or like uh, genuses or families of animals that are totally extinct now, but were really, really popular at one point in, in natural history. Okay. Yeah, just like groups that have totally died out for one reason or another. We've already done extinctions. Let's just do it again. Not extinctions, because that focused specifically on very, on like, we each focus on like a specific species. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking we could talk about like, like an entire family of animals, you know? Okay. Like, for example, I, in our extinctions episode, I talked about the passenger pigeon, but for this episode, like one of us could talk about like sauropods. All right. All right. We look at the whole group. You know, you see what I'm getting at? I see what you're getting at. And we could like even put a cap on it and say nothing Nothing more recent than like three million years ago. Okay, a lot happened in three million years. I know, but we we'll, we'll, we can like exclude that. That's too recent, you know, something like that. Okay, so what are we going to call it? Extinct lineages? Yeah, yeah. All right, extinct lineages. Yeah, we should really do a deep dive in the prehistoric stuff. Yeah, yeah. We talked about Megalodon. I talked about the coelacanth, but I didn't, I wouldn't even count that in hindsight. Yeah, no. Because that survived to the present day, as that woman discovered in her suitcase. All right, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, works for me. You want to take us out? I'll take us out. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a review and follow on your podcast app of choice. And if you have a suggestion for a future episode, you can reach us at souppodpodcast at twitter.com, or you can email us at theprimordialsouppod at gmail.com. All right, sounds good. And until next time, I'm Rustin Perret. And I'm Aaron Johnson. See you.